Welcome to another episode of the Tom Shimmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. And of course, happy holidays. Uh, just a reminder as we get going this week that this is the last podcast for 2020. We will be taking a two-week break over the holidays, so there'll be no podcast for the next two weeks. But we will be back with a new episode on Monday, January 4th, so stay tuned for that. A quick fantasy football update. Uh, yes, in fact, I did finish first in the regular season, uh, so that came through last week. And uh, we're into the quarterfinals right now. And I have an 18-point lead over my opponent heading into Monday Night Football. My opponent has one player remaining, uh, and that is Kareem Hunt of the Cleveland Browns. So tonight's game, Cleveland against Baltimore, will be pivotal in whether I move on to the semifinals. Um, I'm feeling pretty confident uh, about that, uh, but I would like to have a little more comfortable lead than just 80 points is pretty good, but I'd rather have more, to be honest. Uh, Too many turnovers from my team yesterday, Pat Mahomes. Uh, and also poor showings from so many of my strong players, whether it was Corey Davis, Terry McLaurin, um, Aaron Jones, James Conner. All of them had poor outings for me yesterday, so they really underperformed. Only Austin Eckler uh, showed up and, and, and really came through. So, uh, like I said, feeling fairly confident since I know Kareem Hunt and Nick Chubb do split a lot of time with the Browns. Uh, so we'll see. They Neither tends to accrue too many points, but uh, like I said, feeling fairly confident, but uh, I... You know, you'll, you'll know in January what happened with the rest of the fantasy football season since I won't be able to update you next week. You're probably thinking to yourself, like, when is this fantasy football thing going to end? Well, it's going to end in two weeks, but uh, I'm warning you, uh, my fantasy basketball draft was yesterday, so there's no end in sight. <laughs> so different beast. You probably won't get weekly updates of basketball as they do in football, but as you can tell, uh, I love sports. I love following it, and uh, fantasy sports is just a fun hobby that I like to participate in. You know, as always, I say this a lot. Uh, there's a ton of podcasts out there, so thanks for choosing to listen again this week, and welcome again to any new listeners or uh, anyone just joining for the first time or relatively new to the podcast. Really appreciate you uh coming along. I want to again remind you of the YouTube channel uh, for the podcast. Um, the video interview of Katie Martin, that was episode uh, 9 from uh, November 16th, that has now been posted on the YouTube channel. I'm going to try to update that and make sure we get all the video versions of the interviews up on the on the website of the, the YouTube channel, I should say. And, you know, I think those video uh, interviews are really great for PD sessions. I think you know, if you found a clip from Katie or from Tom Gusky or Anthony or any of the whole host of great people that I've had on, um, taking some of their sort of sound bites and using them to stimulate dialogue amongst a faculty or, you know, a PD session or something like that could be really great. So, again, I'm going to hoping to add some other video features, etc. in 2021. So we're just getting started with the YouTube channel, just trying to make that another option for you to think about. So if you haven't subscribed to the YouTube channel yet, I really would encourage you to do so. Um, and head out there. It's just Tom Shimmer Podcast on YouTube, and you'll see, again, full-length episodes are there. Video versions of the episodes come out a few weeks after the full-length episode, and uh, and ho- like I said, in 2021, I'm hoping to add some other different features, so stay tuned for that. You know, you're, you're listening, uh, you're subscribing, all of that really, really uh, means a lot to me, and I, I really appreciate it. Uh, today, we've got my friend Eric Francis uh, in the interview. He's going to join me to talk about what's a good question. We're going to talk about DOK. Uh, Eric is known for his expertise in uh, depth of knowledge, uh, so we're going to dig into that and a uh, really great conversation we had. In Assessment Corner this week, I'm going to focus and highlight on the importance of repacking standards. I know many people understand the idea of unpacking standards, but I want to talk about repacking standards to ensure academic rigor and to ensure accuracy in reporting. So uh, that's the plan for today. Uh, Let's get to it. 
My conversation with Eric Francis is coming up shortly. But first, don't at me. (laughs) And you probably won't this week, because I want to open this week by expressing my gratitude to you, the listeners. Gratitude is something I try to practice consistently in my life. And I can say now, though of course I'm human and I have my ups and downs like anyone else, it's actually pretty habitual for me. Last July, when my friend Andrea nudged me to do this podcast, I wasn't really sure where it would go or how it would turn out or how many people would listen. I don't know where it fits into the grand scheme of things, as I know there are a lot of well-established podcasts out there. And of course, this fall, it seemed like everyone had the same idea. Hey, what a great time to start a podcast. (laughs) We all thought we found the secret code or the secret sauce, and, and of course we hadn't. But it's all good, because I think one of the worst things we can do in life is compare. Because here's the truth. We're all somewhere in the middle. Someone is always doing a little better than you, while someone is always doing a little worse. And social media, of course, can magnify this, as what you see on social media usually amounts to Sports Center. It's just the highlights. <laughs> and gratitude itself is a funny thing in some ways as well, because for some reason, people think that if you want more in your life, that you're somehow ungrateful for what you have or what you've done or what you've accomplished. I don't know, know really why that is. Like, like you're some kind of monster or you're supposed to feel guilty for wanting more. Listen, we all want more. Let's just be honest. If more happiness, success, confidence, opportunity, and yes, even more money were put in front of you, you wouldn't reject it. Anyone who says they would is being performative and ultimately dishonest with themselves. For whatever reason, society has conjured up this caricature of people striving for more as being egocentric, heartless, money-hungry, or whatever that is. What is that? It's, it's just one of these mixed messages we get in society, right? Never settle, but be grateful for what you've accomplished. How about this? How about we do both? For me, gratitude has never been about the guilt. It's really about being grounded in what I think is a more favorable state of mind. Gratitude, for me, ironically, is actually the key to achieving more. Again, whatever your more is, however you define more. When you think thoughts of gratitude, you feel grateful. And that's the, the, the emotion, right? And you might recall me talking about that in a previous episode. The emotions for me are the key. Like my emotions are my insight into what my most dominant thoughts have been. So if your more is coming from some diabolical or cynical or competitive mindset, then you aren't going to feel the joy and the calmness that comes from gratitude. You're going to feel anxious. You're going to feel competitive. You're going to hope that others don't succeed. That whole mindset is going to put you in what I think is a misguided frame of mind, which negatively impacts your energy, and then that's what you'll be sort of resonating. You ever got a bad vibe from someone or a situation? I mean, what is that if it's not the energy that person or circumstance is emitting that you're picking up on? You hear people say this all the time, I have a bad feeling about this. Now, according to Josh Brown, who's a professor of psychological and brain sciences at Indiana University, and Joel Wong, associate professor of counseling psychology also at Indiana University, gratitude can change you and your brain in four significant ways. Now, what they did is they conducted a study involving nearly 300 adults, mostly college students who were seeking mental health counseling at a particular university. They recruited those participants just before they began their first session of counseling. And 
On average, the participants reported clinically low levels of mental health at the time. The majority of people seeking counseling services, the participants at the university in general, struggled with issues related to depression and anxiety. So here's what they did. They took those group, the group of participants and they assigned them to three groups. All three groups received their counseling services, but one group was also instructed to write one letter of gratitude to another person each week for three weeks. The second group was asked to write about their deepest thoughts and feelings about negative experiences, and the third group didn't do any writing at all. So here's what they found. First, gratitude unshackles us from toxic emotions. They said that when you write about how grateful you are to others and how much other people have blessed your life, it becomes considerably more difficult for you to ruminate in your own negative experiences. Two, gratitude helps even if you don't share it. So the mere act of writing the letter itself can help people appreciate the other people in our lives or the things that we're grateful for. Even if you never send the letter, it shifts your focus away from negative feelings and thoughts. Three, gratitude's benefits take time. So if you do start to build the habit of, of thinking you know, grateful thoughts or, or an attitude of gratitude, if you will, if you start to do that letter writing or things like that, don't be surprised if you don't feel dramatically better immediately after writing the letter. They said you have to be patient because the benefits of gratitude do take some time to kick in. And four, what they found was that gratitude has a lasting effect on the brain. So they used an MRI scan to, to measure brain activity while people from each of the groups were participating in a pay it forward kind of task. And they wanted to distinguish donations. This was a donation type task, pay it forward. They wanted to distinguish donations motivated by gratitude from donations driven by other motivations like guilt or obligation. So they asked the participants to rate how grateful they felt toward the benefactor and then how much they wanted to help the charitable cause, as well as how guilty they would feel if they didn't help. And what they found was that across the participants, when people felt more grateful, their brain activity was quite distinct from the brain activity related to guilt and the desire to help the cause. So the indication was that simply expressing gratitude may have a lasting effect on your brain. And they said, look, this is not conclusive. They understand this is just one study, but they were saying that their findings suggested that practicing gratitude may actually help train your brain to be more sensitive to the experience of gratitude down the line. And this could contribute to improved mental health over time. So developing this habit or the attitude of gratitude improves or could at least improve our mental health and is much more than just positive thinking. Again, our thoughts produce emotions. And for me, it's the emotions that produce the residual effect, at least in my life. That's how I kind of see it. How I'm feeling directly impacts how I see the world around me. So I pay very close attention to how I feel because uh, I know those feelings come from what I'm thinking. Look, no one really knows, okay? Does, does positive thinking work? I don't know. I don't know for sure. Uh, does negative thinking work? Well, I would definitively say yes when it comes to my life because I think I have some examples in my life where constant negative thinking did actually manifest that which I was negatively thinking about. But who really knows, right? We don't know. None of us can predict the future. Uh, so I often ask myself, which frame of mind look, if any of this is true, 
which frame of mind is going to bring me closer and more aligned with what I want to feel in the future, right? So if I want to feel gratitude in the future, I want to feel grateful now. If I want to feel happy in the future, I want to force myself to feel happy now. If I want to be inspired in the future, I need to feel inspired now. Look, this doesn't mean you're ignoring the challenges of life. Life can be hard and life can be really hard for some. And I don't want to be dismissive of that. But for your own mental health, we in our own mental health, we may, despite the acute situation of the long-term circumstances we find ourselves in, we may have to force ourselves to become more aware of what or who we are grateful for in our lives. This is about you. I guess for me, it's the idea of acting as if the future has already happened, even if it hasn't, to sort of trick your brain into creating thoughts that generate those feelings. So I want to say to you authentically, in practicing gratitude, that I am truly grateful for all of you. I'm grateful to those of you who've been with me so far, week to week, indulging me as I grow as a podcaster, as an interviewer, and a one-man production team. <laughs> I'm grateful to those of you who've come on board recently, you know, to add and expand the listener base, and, and you thought to yourself, you know what, there's something here that interests me, so maybe I'll stick around. I appreciate you. I'm grateful to those occasional listeners who may not listen week to week religiously, but who drop in, drop out when there are topics or guests that catch your attention. I'm grateful to those of you who are just catching up. You know, maybe you're listening to this in February or March. <laughs> who knows? Anyway, I appreciate you, all of you. Your feedback, your comments, your questions, all of it. I'm grateful for all of it. And I'm grateful for how that feeling of gratitude is going to grow exponentially for me in 2021, and I hope it will for you as well. To say that 2020 has been a tough year is the understatement of the century. And there is no magic switch that's going to get flipped on January 1st, 2021. But for our own mental health, practice developing an attitude of gratitude, again, not out of guilt, but with a purposeful eye on how it's going to positively ground you and impact you and how you see the world around you. Yes, gratitude is about others, but it's also about you and the kinds of feelings that you generate, which creates your experiences on a day-to-day -day basis. Joining me today is Eric Francis, who is an international author and presenter from Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, Eric has over 20 years of experience working as a classroom teacher, a site administrator, an education program specialist with state agencies, as well as a professional development trainer. He provides academic and professional development to uh, K-12 schools, to colleges, to universities on developing rigorous learning environments. His areas of expertise include teaching and learning for depth of knowledge, higher level questioning and inquiry, authentic learning, differentiated instruction, and personalized learning. Uh, Eric is the author of the book, Now That's a Good Question, How to Promote Cognitive Rigor uh, Through Classroom Questioning, and that was published through ASCD. And his forthcoming book on teaching and learning for depth of knowledge is set to be published by Solution Tree in 2021. So we're looking forward to that publication from Eric as well. So I'm excited to have Eric on the podcast today. Eric, welcome to the Tom Schumer Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. Awesome. Awesome. I'm, I, you know, I've awesome. been looking forward to this conversation. <laughs> we, um, we've talked a little bit through social media and through other conversations, and I've looked forward to this conversation. I really want to dig in because I think that for listeners, 
this idea of cognitive rigor is something that on the one hand, we understand its importance, but still for some of us, it might elude us. So we're going to dig into cognitive rigor and depth of knowledge and, and really dig into those details. So Eric, let's start with the title of your first book. Uh, what is a good question and how do you define cognitive rigor? Okay. Well, you know, it's really interesting you ask that question, what is a good question? Because what I'd say to people is that it's not what is a good question, it's what a good question does. So a good question stimulates deeper thinking. When I ask you a question that basically it is meant to spark your thinking. What I like to say is that if I had CAT scans and MRIs in front of everybody, that if I asked you a question, you would watch them light up because it sparks your brain. Mm -hmm. So it stimulates deeper thinking when I'm asking a question. A good question also deepens knowledge, understanding, awareness. You're not supposed to know the answer. And it's okay to say, I don't know. I see a few things out there lately where people are saying, well, we don't want them to say, I don't know. Yes, we do want them to say, I don't know. Because when you don't know, that stimulates thinking and that also encourages learning. If they say, I don't know towards the end of the experience or at the end of the experience, then we have the problem. So if you ask them a question and they say, I don't know, then as a teacher, you should be saying, well, I don't expect you to, I'm just starting the lesson. But by the end of this lesson or by the end of this unit or by the end of this experience, you will know. A good question also expands knowledge, extends thinking. It's supposed to basically challenge your thinking. It's supposed to make you think about something that you maybe never ever thought about. And a good question also piques curiosity, imagination, interest, and wonder. When I ask you a good question, it really is supposed to get your mind to get into that multi-sensory visual sense where you're thinking about it, you're seeing it, you're hearing it. Mm -hmm. And a good question also allows students to express and share their learning in their own unique way. Questioning is about communication. Questioning is not about answering, it's about addressing and responding. Because traditionally, you know, we give an answer and that's the end of it, but that's not what good questions are about. What I've also added since the book, because I've seen a lot of things out there about questioning and inquiry lately, that's kind of made me do like the call the Dwayne Johnson, the, you know, so yeah. um, two things I'm adding to it is that a good question needs to be phrased as a question. I see so many things out there and says, this is a question. No, it's not. It may have a question stem with it, but when you're saying describe how, ex explain why, that's not a question, it's a directive. If that, direction or that statement makes you sound more like Arlie Emery from Full Metal Jacket or when he's the green soldier in Toy Story than Socrates, it's not a question. And also a good question basically encourages you to reflect and respond. You're not supposed to answer quickly. So like, for example, if I said to you, um, so how did Edgar Allan Poe create an entire genre of literary fiction? You say, I don't know, but I don't expect you to because I'm just starting a lesson. What if I told you that Edgar Allan Poe was the first author to write a detective mystery story that featured a sleuth who used deductive reasoning and logic to solve a crime? And what if I told you that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, 50 years later when he created Sherlock Holmes, he actually admitted that he based the character on a character Edgar Allan Poe created 50 years before named C. Auguste Dupont in The Murders in the Room Morgue. Think about how much I just taught you right. and I didn't even lecture. I asked a question. So that's the thing. When I ask you a question, so I could basically come in there and say to you, so 
how could addition and rounding be used to prove that two plus two could equal five? Well, everyone will say, well, two plus two can equal five. Well, what if I use addition and rounding? Could two plus two equal five? See, and that's what gets that's what gets you into it. That's what gets you invested in it. And in our world where answers come free, because answers all are right here. I mean, right, I can right. go and go on a computer and get the answer to everything. Okay. And when people say if you can Google it, it's not a good question. That's not true. Google is our resource. Google gives us the answers, but what we need to do with the answers, that's the true teaching. And that's what I even say to some teachers that give them the answer and have them think deeply. And that's that whole thing about cognitive rigor because cognitive rigor, I didn't create that concept. Karen Hess came up with it and it was really fascinating how she did it where she for years um, was talking about depth of knowledge in terms of assessment alignment. And most people use Bloom's taxonomy, but they use depth of, people start using depth of knowledge after Webb came out with it. So she created that matrix. What I did with the definition of cognitive rigor, my definition of cognitive rigor derived from hers and her matrix is that cognitive rigor um, demands students to demonstrate different levels of thinking and understand and use their knowledge in different contexts, understand and use their depth of knowledge. So if the true definition of cognitive rigor is, is that cognitive rigor is about demonstrating different levels of thinking and understanding you using depth of knowledge in different contexts and in your own unique way. So that's pretty much the definition I've come up with when it comes to cognitive rigor. So interesting. I love that um, idea of not seeking answers, but stimulating thinking through through the, the question and, and, and not really just looking for that answer. And you're right. There's a lot of that sort of, you know, yes, you can Google the answer, but that's that's not really what we're after in terms of, of you know, trying to reach students to think differently or think creatively or, or think even critically about, you know, different questions that we pose to them for sure. So what are the, you talk a lot about the eight types of questions that promote cognitive rigor. Can you kind of run us through those eight types of questions that, that do promote that? And, and how do we sort of uh, expand our repertoire to really know how to infuse this into our practice on a daily basis? Well, a lot of actually what came out of good questions and why I did good questions was because um, of the, um, the discussions around what's an essential question. I mean, when you ask, I ask in my trainings, what's an essential question? And I say, well, what if I said it depends upon who you read? Because you have Grant Wiggins and Jamie Tiggs, um, concept of what essential questions are, which was derived from Ted Sizer with his essential schools. And Ted Sizer talks about how essential questions address the core ideas and enduring understandings of a subject. But Grant Wiggins and Jay McTighe says it's the most important question we can ask the students to have them engage in deeper learning. And then you have John Larmer come in and say, it's the driving question for a project-based learning experience. So one of the first question I say is that uh, the first type of good question that promotes cognitive rigor is an essential question. And there's four types. You have okay. the universal, and that's the grander, bigger, broader theme. Like if I asked you, what is life? And then I can ask the kids, what's the dictionary definition? What's the religious definition? What's the philosophical? What's the legal? Okay. An mm -hmm. overarching question addresses the core ideas and enduring understandings of a subject. That's found in our um, anchor standards or the standards of mathematical practice. It's the, it's the question I can ask any grade level. So I can ask, how does science explain natural events and phenomena? Or how can the central idea and theme of a text be determined? and its development over the course of the text. 
I can say to you then, pick three units you learned this year, answer this question. Pick three texts you read this year, answer that question. So it's actually more of a summative question in terms of grade level. And I can do that at any grade level. I can compare the answers. Like what'd you say in third grade? to what'd you say in sixth grade? I can ask that question every year. Topical is about the unit. So if I'm teaching about organisms and environment, how does an organism grow and develop in an environment? That's my science topical question. It's the one assessment question. Or how does um, a text we're reading in um, literature, like an informational text or a fiction text, um, how does it address the central idea or theme of life? The driving question encourages you to express and share your learning in your own unique way. And that is more of a, what we use for project-based learning or problem-based learning. And that's often prefaced with the three words, how could you? In fact, I can put how could you in front of every standard objective and I come up with a driving question. So if the standard says fluently multiply multi-digit numbers using the standard algorithm, how could you multiply multi-digit numbers fluently using a standard algorithm? Now I have my driving question because it's about personalized learning. Mm -hmm. The other seven, and that's one category with four subsections. The other seven is factual. That's your who, what, where, and when. You're basically recalling for factual knowledge. Your analyticals or your hows and whys or what categorizes or what classifies or what, um, um, uh, yeah, I think I characterize and classifies, right? Um, similarities and differences, what distinguishes. Your reflective or your more your evaluative. So that's where you're asking, what is the effect? What impact? What influence? What are the causes, the connections, the consequences? Your hypotheticals are the most creative questions. And most often they will not be on standardized assessments because those are the questions that ask, what if, what would happen, what could happen, uh, how may, how might, how will. Your argumentatives, now argumentative, you have to be careful because if you phrase an argumentative question that can only be answered with yes or no or agree or disagree, that's not a good question. Those are called dichotomous questions. Right, and there's only right. two ways to answer them. So you need to give them the choice and the argumentative. So it shouldn't be, should the death penalty be abolished? Should the death penalty be abolished, legally permitted, or it depends on the situation? Or which ones allow for choice so they can justify? Mm -hmm. Your effectives, they address actually the effective domain of Bloom's taxonomy, which talks about how people process information and respond to learning. So those are your questions of like, what do you think? What do you, how could you, what do you believe? What is your opinion, thought, perspective? How could you, how do you, how can you? Your personal question comes from the student. The personal question is you're teaching them, you're teaching them all this stuff. You ask the students, okay, I'm teaching you this. What do you want to learn about this? That becomes their question. They take ownership of it and they go find a response and then they teach the class. That question really helps because there's a lot of books out there about questioning and inquiry where they talk about, we need to have the kids ask questions more than the teachers ask questions. Well, that's great, but kids lose the art of questioning because of school. Mm -hmm. Because you think of a child between the age of two and five, they're asking questions. And what's the question you always ask? Why? Research shows a child between the age of two and five will ask 200 to 400 questions a day. And it's all to their mother. When they come to school, because that teacher now has 30 of other people's children going, why, 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 why? Now that controls the questions. And the question is not for learning anymore. The question is more for assessment. Do you know this? And that's why we get put off on it a little bit. And that's why when kids go to preschool, they lose the art of questioning to learn 
And then when they go to K through two, you'll hear of a first grader go, I have a question. Well, what's your question? I went to McDonald's last night. Okay, what's your question? Nothing, you know? So we need to teach it with the art of questioning. When they start to get to third grade, where they start to get more so the, the, the summative of the standardized assessments, we need to get to that test. We don't have time for questions, okay? And that's when it starts to stop with the kids around third grade. Fourth and fifth grade, that still happens, but now you got more of the social um, peer pressure. You ask a question and someone goes, you're so stupid or duh, or keep asking questions, Eric, we, we're, we're wasting time. And then you get to middle school and you don't question, okay? Right. Like it becomes more like a challenge. And then you get to high school. The worst thing you can ask a high school kid is, does anyone have any questions? Because they learned, no, I'm good. I'm in, out, get my degree and done. We need to basically spark that art of questioning with kids. But we as teachers, we need to model it. We can't just have kids ask questions to learn if we're not asking questions so they can learn. We need to right. stop with so much asking questions right. to assess. And we need to focus on asking questions so the students learn. Yeah. Okay. So let's pick up on that because uh, I love that idea of, of thinking about the way we question because undoubtedly asking questions is probably the most frequent thing teachers do. Now, the degree of effectiveness can be up for debate, but the bottom line is that it's probably the most dominant action that a teacher takes is asking their students questions. So what suggestions do you have for teachers wanting to audit their questioning practices? Like as, as they look at the what they do on a day-to-day -day basis, how do they kind of reflect and think about their own questioning techniques to ensure that they are modeling uh, what it is you're hoping that they would model for their students? Well, you know, it's really funny, Tom, and something I learned actually in my career, we actually think that questioning is a natural thing teachers do, and it's not. Hmm. And that blew my mind. And that's something I had to learn as a PD person. Because when I first started this whole thing, I come to your school and go, okay, guys, we're going to make good questions. Here's eight different types of questions that promote cognitive rigor. Let's go make them. Nothing. So I really had to go and really say, wow, I have to help them and guide them and support them, not teach them. That kind of sounds very insulting if you think about it. But how do mm -hmm. I guide and support them? And that made me better as a presenter because what I realized is I have to be responsive to the way the teachers say things and do things and the way they see things, okay? So the first thing you need to do to be a good questioner is that you have to be naturally curious and you have to question everything, okay? This is why I love the question formulation technique from um, the uh, Right Questions Institute because they talk about a Q focus and a Q focus is a stimulus. Everything in life should be a stimulus. Let me give you an example. When COVID broke out, when the whole thing with coronavirus broke out, and I'm hearing now this is a pandemic, my mind is going into overdrive as a naturally curious questioning person. Okay, what's a pandemic? What's the difference between a pandemic and an epidemic? What are the pandemics that have happened through history? How have those hit the pandemics uh, been addressed? What's the difference between this pandemic and the pandemic that happened in this era, in this era? What's the connections with it? So it's that natural curiosity about it or to basically someone says something to you, like for example, not to get political, my daughter once asked me, um, dad, is Donald Trump the most hated president in the United States history? And I said, I don't know. How do you think people felt about Abraham Lincoln when uh, he signed the Emancipation Proclamation? How do you think people felt about uh, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt when he didn't want to get involved in World War II 
and then got pushed into getting involved in World War II because of the attack on Pearl Harbor. See, history often presents to us you know, the success. They don't present the other side. How do you think people felt about George Washington when a significant amount of the country did not want a centralized, powerful government at the federal level? Mm -hmm. So again, it's that thing. Like someone says something, boom, you got a question. The other thing is it depends upon how you look at your standards, okay? That your standards, the question is often embedded in the standard. So if I ask, for example, um, understand how the Articles of Confederation led to the writing of the US Constitution. Question stems right there, how? Take off, understand, now I got my question. So, so I came up with two ways to do this, is that, and it depends on how the teacher, and you have to really, as a PD person, why is it we differentiate instruction, but we don't differentiate professional development? And we need to look at our audience. So I help them two different ways. First way, I, three different ways, actually. What I do first is say this, okay, take your standards because all your questions come from your standards. Your standards are your finish line, as you know, with teaching and learning. Put how could you in front of every standard. Now you have the deepest, most personal question we can ask the kids. It naturally becomes that. Then what you do depends on how, what type of person you are. You can either reconstruct or rephrase the statement of objective, which is an imperative sentence, like fluently multiply multi-digit numbers using a standard algorithm. That's not a question. I can change that around the wording and say, okay, what is the Bloom's verb? Uh, multiply. So I'm gonna put that in form B, B multiply. What am I multiplying? Um, using a standard algorithm, okay? And what am I multiplying? Multi-digit numbers. Now I'm gonna put my question stem there. How? Do I wanna make it procedural? How can? Do I wanna make it hypothetical? How could, which infers is more in one way. Someone who's more logical and mathematical or even bodily kinesthetic, they know how to rearrange the words like that. Mm -hmm. Some people, they need to look at it and look from a different perspective. So what we need to learn and the basic facts are actually airing the standards. So if I said, analyze, interpret data on natural hazards to forecast future events, catastrophic events, and inform the development of technologies to mitigate their effects, I'm going to turn that into a factual statement. Data on natural hazards can be analyzed, interpreted to forecast future catastrophic events and inform the development of technologies to mitigate their effects. You're going to tell me how, right, how right. can data on, so it's how you see it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the thing in terms of questioning the, for, in terms of being in the moment, you have to look at it and say, am I telling the kids to do something? Or am I asking the kids to think about something? Am mm -hmm. I sounding like Arlie Emery in Full Metal Jacket? Or am I sounding like Socrates where I'm walking in the Coliseum and asking that question and getting you to think? Every time you want to tell the kids something, phrases a question. So if you noticed when I was telling you about the Edgar Allan Poe thing, notice I didn't say that Edgar Allan Poe wrote the first detective mystery story. I say, what if I told you? Right. So if you said that before every time you lectured, we say, what if I told you two plus two could equal five? Mm -hmm. What if I told you I could use additional rounding to make that true? Now go prove it. See, now I'm getting to think deeper. So right. again, it's really how, who you really have to look at who you are and how you can change your thinking approach. And that's what I do as a PD person is that I have that audience. I got to differentiate my professional development. There's the Eric Francis way, and I do it this way, but you're not Eric Francis, and I don't expect you to be Eric Francis. So my job is to figure out how could that work for you? 
Um, to quote one of my favorite uh, Peloton instructors, I have a Peloton, his name's Dennis Morton. He says, I give suggestions, you make decisions. So I'm gonna give you all these different suggestions. You could do it this way, you could do it that way, you could do it that way. Take which way works for you. And none of it does, okay, which one you like the best? I like this way, and then how can you make it your own? During this time of uh, uh, COVID, obviously since the spring and, and into the summer, and now of course into the fall, I know you've been working with uh, countless numbers of teachers and, and, uh, and schools. So what advice have you been you know, in, in questions are universal in a way. A, a good question will transfer. But obviously, during the pandemic, there, when you're in remote learning or hybrid learning, there is maybe this reflex that has us thinking about things that are tangible, things that are easy, producing answers versus thinking. So, what are some of the um, you know pieces of advice you've been giving to teachers and schools about how they can maintain cognitive rigor? not just in the past, because we don't know what this year still holds for us. We don't know if schools a month from now, two months from now are going to have to pivot. So what are some of the pieces of advice you've been giving to teachers and schools about how to maintain cognitive rigor, given the uncertainty of the pandemic? Well, that's the thing. Questioning lends it to that because we are now in this environment. Remember when I said, if you can Google it, it's not a good question. That's what many people say. No, now it's, if you can Google that question, your students will learn deeper. So I can throw a question out there for you. Let's say I'll even throw a simple question. Who was the first president of the United States? Go and Google that. Someone Googles it. They see George Washington's picture. They see um, references to him. But when you scroll, you start to see references to a gentleman named John Hansen. And John Hansen was the first president appointed under the Articles of Confederation, which was the first governing document of the United States after the revolution. The Articles of Confederation led to the US Constitution. So then my students will say, well, who's this John Hansen? And I say, well, click on the link. Well, it says this. And I, they say, what's your source? Wikipedia. Okay, Wikipedia, I know for educators, we've been looking at that saying, no, that's bad. You're right. It's not a source, but Wikipedia is the internet librarian. Like when you and I were growing up and we had to go research, we didn't look and say, John Hansen was the first president of the United States under Congress assembled. Who told you that, Eric? Uh, Mrs. Uh, Dufresne down in the library. No. Wikipedia whittles down millions of sources into credible sources. And Wikipedia, you can't go on there unless the source is confirmed. You can't put stuff on there unless the source is confirmed. So when they do that and they see there's this other guy named John Hansen, and actually there were seven other guys besides John Hansen who served under the Artists Confederation. Now the question becomes, should George Washington continue to be credited as the first president of the United States or should we acknowledge these other eight presidents of the United States under Congress assembled, appointed in the Articles of Confederation? Now, the history purists will say, no, Washington is the first president. He was the first elected. It's how, what defines the presidency. And I'll say, you're right. And then you have that other person who's a divergent thinker who says, well, wait a minute. These guys were called presidents in name. What was the question? But this is basically what real world thinking is about. Because when I did this at a school, a teacher said to me, John Hansen, and told me the whole story. Mm -hmm. And I said, wow, you must be a historian. She goes, no, he's my ancestor. Okay. Wow. So that got, that, that got word out with the kids. And the kids wanted to hire a lobbyist to go to Congress and have them pass um, a bill or have the president sign an executive order that, the, that these president of the United States under Congress assembled should be acknowledged as presidents. 
So what I also do from there, I come from, a, I take a project where I give them problem situation that these eight, from this experience, these eight, the, eight, the ancestors of these eight presidents of the United States under Congress assembled, I call them potosukas. Um, they want their ancestors acknowledged. Pick one or five roles. You are the lobbyist they hired. What kind of argument could you create to, to basically justify that or support these ancestors? You're the congressperson who's against it. What kind of argument can you present against it? You are the mediator who was called in by the president to come up with a compromise. What kind of compromise could you come up with? You are the PR person, the public relations person who has to get it out there. There were eight presidents before George Washington. What kind of promotional plan can you come out with? I mean, we can't even accept that Pluto's not a planet. You know, how are you going to get convinced people? You are the citizen who thinks this is a waste of time. What kind of op-ed editorial can you write for the paper to say why the government should not work on this? So again, look where that comes from. Mm -hmm. Ask them questions and have them go and Google it. Hey, I found this source. What source did you find? It's this. Is it credible? Yeah. Can you share that with the class? Yeah. Put that in the chat box. Mm -hmm. You can also do it with the younger kids. I get a lot of pushback sometimes from K through two teachers, like, right. oh, the littles can't do it. Well, then you teach them how to do it. And my perspective on that is that when you say they're too young, my perspective is if not now, then when? Right. Because when they get older, they have other responsibilities. And a lot of times we're teachers, they also presume you already know this and you already learned this. So again, that question drives you. If not now, then when? The mm -hmm. other thing is, don't think you don't have time and you need to switch up the way you think about it. If you're saying, I have a lot of stuff to teach, that means you have a lot of work to do. But if you say they have a lot of stuff to learn or a lot of answers to learn, not stuff, answers to learn, now you're in that questioning mindset. What's the question I have to ask them so they can go and get that answer? Yeah. And that lends yeah. itself in this environment. We need to stop driving our online virtual platform like a Ford Edsel, okay? This is a Tesla, mm -hmm. all right? And we, it's very, we cannot bring the brick and mortar experience into the virtual platform. We're having a harder time with it or we're having as much of a hard time with it as our students. If you get them and do questioning, if you ask questions and have them Google it or have them go out and find it and ask them, what's the credibility of source? That's deeper learning because mm -hmm. credibility is huge. Right. So, so that's, that's my, that's my thing. I would say, try to figure out how you can come up with questions that kids can go do searches with or reflect and respond to that might make your job much easier and make the experience much, much more deeper and rewarding for everybody. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you on the, uh, the comment about the littles. I think obviously if you look at a question that you would ask a high school student, that might not be applicable to someone who's seven years old, but the idea, the idea that seven-year-olds can't think deeply uh, for, for where they are in their growth and development is to me absurd. I think that we can promote thinking uh, at all levels for sure. Okay. So let's, let's shift gears now and talk a little bit about uh, Webb's DOK framework. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm most interested in, in your sort of thoughts around the relationship and, and how you might articulate this. I hear this a lot from people. Uh, should I use webs? Should I use blooms? Are they contradictory? Are they complementary? I hear this a lot with folks. So I'm interested in your perspective, Eric. What is, how do you explain the relationship between Webb's DOK framework and Bloom's taxonomy? First thing is basically this base. We have to really understand that Webb's depth of knowledge levels is not a taxonomy. 
So it's not like Bloom's. It's not like the solo taxonomy. It's not like Marzano's taxonomy or the six facets of understanding or Costas' level of questioning or Fink's uh, uh, this development of um, taxonomy of significant learning. It's not a taxonomy. The four levels are not measures, they're descriptors. They describe four different ways in which students can demonstrate their learning or understand and use their knowledge. They should not be considered better or higher. They're deeper or reduced. And that's the big thing that I talk about with depth of knowledge is that it is more of a descriptor than a measure. Rigor is the measure, okay? Right. Thinking is the measure. Depth of knowledge is about the context. It's about basically when you're teaching and learning for depth of knowledge, you're asking what exactly and how deeply must I demonstrate my learning? What exactly and how deeply must I understand and use the knowledge? So that's the big thing. And that's why when Karen Hess made the matrix, she put it into matrix form and superimposed it because depth of knowledge supplements and supports learning. So I can have a student demonstrate a deeper level of thinking. Let's say, for example, let's use analyze because everyone loves the word analyze. And then we use create as well. Um, if I said analyze whether the information is contained in this text, that's a DOK one because all I'm doing is recalling. Okay, I'm recalling information to analyze whether the information is text. My expectation is just do it. Okay, if I analyze how the information is presented in the text, now I'm going to DOK two because I have to use information and basic reasoning or apply knowledge concepts and skills. This is why I call DOK descriptors. I have to do that to examine and explain with examples. That's how I respond. A DLK three would be analyze um, the effect of um, the way this information is presented or analyze what would happen if it was presented this way. That is a DLK three because now you're using complex reasoning supported by evidence or thinking strategically to examine and explain with evidence. A DLK four is analyze how two different texts addressing the same topic present the information and its impact on the audience. Mm -hmm. It's not about doing more. It's about going deeper and extending it. Okay. It's always about depth. It's not about breadth. It's about depth. Right. So notice the same verb, higher level thinking, mm -hmm. four different and deeper ways you can analyze. Let's use create because everyone thinks of create. Oh, they're at the highest level of thinking. Create a chronological sequence of events. That's a timeline. All I'm doing is I'm right, recalling right. the events creatively. Create and use a chronological sequence of events to compare developments that happen at the same time. Now that context is a little deeper. I'm still creating, but now I'm using it. So it's everything that comes after the verb to compare developments that happen at the same time. It's not just the verb. It's what comes after the verb, everything. Right. right. Create and use a chronological sequence to analyze the connections between events and developments. Now it's a three, okay? Because now I'm looking, I'm analyzing the connections with this, but I'm still creating, high, but I'm, I'm, I'm doing a DOK3 because I'm thinking strategically and using complex reasoning supported by evidence. Um, create and use a chronological sequence of events to evaluate the impact events have on each other during the time period and in broader historical context. Now I'm at a four, yeah. okay? I'm still creating. So with depth of knowledge, when you're looking at the verb, what I say to people is this, find out where it is in blooms. Great. 
Put that first verb aside. Now look and see what comes after the verb. That will tell you the depth of knowledge level demanded. That is such a critical point and one that I echo as well. And I know as obviously you do too, as that was how you responded to the question. But so many times when I hear people say, we analyze the standards, just look at the verb. The verb will help you, of course, with your assessment method, but the verb alone is not going to identify the cognitive complexity of that learning until you look at what comes after that and after that statement. So I love the fact that you've you've talked about that because I think it's such well, an important part yeah. to remember. And it's also, and this is the thing about people don't understand about standards is that standards have multiple objectives in it. Right. You know, I could say understand and use positive negative numbers to describe how opposite values and measures can be represented. Boy, I have so many verbs in there. Right. Okay. So what you're looking for with depth of knowledge is that the most cognitively demanding objective within a standard is what designates the overall depth of knowledge demanded. Right. So, and, and, and sometimes those objectives are very explicit. There's one objective, period, another objective, period. But then you have objectives within the objective. You know, you can have use uh, um, positive and negative numbers to represent quantities in real world context, explaining the meaning of zero in each context. There's three objectives in there. Right. So I have to look and see which one is the most cognitively demanding. Now, when I have that, what I can do is I can create my items from those objectives because Karen has even says that the DOK level, she calls them ceilings of assessment. And that's what I call them. They're not targets. They're no. targets for lessons, but they are not targets for assessments. They're ceilings. They inform the highest and deepest level. When you see a standard and you realize it's DOK level, you then say, wow, that's the deepest level that assessment will evaluate student learning. It won't right. evaluate them at the next level because that'll make it too difficult. And they won't only evaluate it at that level because again, that'll make it too difficult and unfair. It'll be the range. So I can deconstruct a standard and I can basically whittle it down to its learning targets and success criteria and say, this is the range in which items will assess student learning. Can you do this? No. Can you do this? No. Can you do this? Yes. That's where the teaching begins. Right. Okay. Instruction starts with the standard, but teaching begins with the level of depth of knowledge students can demonstrate. So I tier it. And more often than not, when we do teaching and learning and tier instruction, we're looking for what the kids can't do. With depth of knowledge, you're looking for what the kids can do. You're trying to find the strength and skills, the level of depth of knowledge of their strength and skills. And that's where you begin. You did it. Great. Now you can take it and do this. You can? Yeah. And you can take it and do this. I did it. That will get to it. That's the way that everybody can at least demonstrate proficiency. And I say at right. least because with depth of knowledge, the great thing about depth of knowledge is that I believe strongly that depth of knowledge is that missing link between academic rigor and social emotional support mm. and student responsiveness. So if I had an image, I would put depth of knowledge in a circle and say academic rigor, social emotional support, student responsive. Because with teaching and testing, our responsibility is for students to demonstrate proficiency and to get to proficiency, teaching and testing. Mm. But with teaching and learning, our responsibility is to begin where the students are and have them go 
beyond the expectations, not only the expectations of standard, but the expectations of the students. And with DOK, if I know the DOK level of the assessment or the lesson is a two, all I gotta do is really get them to a two to demonstrate proficiency. But I don't just want them to meet the standard or achieve the standard. I wanna extend their learning. And that doesn't mean exceed the standard. Exceed the standard means I'm going to the next grade level. I mean, extend it to say, here's the academic and here's the practical application of it. Mm -hmm. Here's the academic and here's how you personally can use it. That's what I mean by it. That's why I say, I really believe depth of knowledge and it hasn't been used this way. And I like to say what I do with depth of knowledge is DOK 3.0. Okay, I didn't create this thing. I'm, I'm an innovator, not an inventor. And Norman Webb created it. He created it for an assessment for as a, as a criterion for Lyman studies. Karen has created it as a uh, measure for cognitive rigor. What I'm doing with it is that I'm turning this into a method and a model for teaching and learning. Mm-hmm. I'm taking it and trying to turn it into a multi-tiered system support where within the DOK level, that's where the RTI happens. If I get at the DOK level of the standard or the learning intention or the activity or item, that right there, that's Mm -hmm. tier one. I tier it to tier two to give kids extended learning time to see if they can do it. I tier it to tier three to see what intensive interventions they need, but they're not stuck there. You teach through the tiers. Depth of knowledge allows you to do that. And once you reach it, how can you go beyond it? And yeah. I really think that's the missing link. And that, that's actually what my book's going to be about for Solution okay. Tree, how Wonderful. depth of knowledge is about the missing link between yeah. academic rigor, social emotional support, and student responsiveness. Yeah, I want to I want to just pick up quickly, just you know, to, to just as a reminder to listeners and everyone that you know, sometimes that word ceiling gets misunderstood. And I think it's really critical that we understand that a ceiling for assessment doesn't equate to a ceiling for instruction or, or creative opportunities or interest or passion or, you know, pursuing what what it is that you are interested in. And I think it's really important to keep those two straight. Because when you talk about exceeding the expectations or moving above and beyond, if if that if that ceiling for assessment is not set, then you're moving the goalposts when it comes to expectations around assessment and reporting, grading, meeting state standards or provincial curricula, et cetera. So I think it's really a really critical point you made there, Eric, about the ceiling for assessment does not mean the ceiling for instruction. We can extend students, we can take advantage of their opportunities, uh, their passions, their the things that they're curious about. We can nurture that. But that doesn't mean it all has to funnel back to their grade book and, and, and affect their, their grades for sure. Absolutely right. And that's yeah. why I distinguish it between teaching and testing and right. teaching and learning. I'm not calling it assessment <clears throat> because assessment is the process. And I actually learned that from you with your books, you know, reading a lot of that. So thank you. I mean, you're, you're all welcome. over this book. You know, I appreciate that. Um, and assessment is the process. Testing is the tool. Now, when I'm using that tool to test, teach to test, they have to demonstrate proficiency, okay? That's the assessment can be standardized or it can be authentic. Right. And that's teaching for learning, okay? Teaching for learning is about the student. It's very, I'm, I'm saying in the book that teaching and testing is proficiency-based, but teaching and learning is competency-based when it comes to depth of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I want to um, also say about depth of knowledge is, there's not many people know about this. And this is actually something that I, 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 I think I've shared a little bit with you about this. There's actually a six level depth of knowledge that's specifically for students with exceptional needs. Mm. And that identification of exceptional needs are special education students. 
language learners, not just necessarily English language learners, language learners, okay? Mm -hmm. And gifted and talented. What I'm, it's called, um, uh, H. Gary Cook is the gentleman who did it. And he made this the six levels for alternative assessments. And what he did was he split DOK1 into two different levels called EDOCs, okay? That's what Webb calls them. So instead of DOK1 being recall and reproduce, it's what I did with it is that I basically took the EDOCs and said EDOC1 for special needs students and language learners. Now, and I'm not saying that special needs and language learners are the same. I'm talking about two different things, but it all boils down to communication comprehension. So EDOC1 is respond. Can you comprehend instruction to respond to it? And with a special needs student, that might be comprehending in terms of what's being said to you in terms of cognitive functioning skills. With a language learner, do you understand it in the language? EDOC2 is reproduce. So can I repeat an action or reproduce a procedure? Then there's the DOK levels. But what's interesting about it when I took it is that I said, wow, this supplements DOK and you can slide it into any DOK level. So I can have an EDOC3, but then go supplement an EDOC1 or 2 with it, a DOC DOK3, but an EDOC1 or 2 to say, you're going to have to do this for the standard. Okay, can you respond to that instruction? Can you reproduce that? Can you do it at the level? I also took it and said, what about interventions and support for gifted and talented? Because we have tried to find, figure out how we can do RTI with gifted and talented. And, and that's the thing. So when you talked about like even exceeding the standards, I mean, that, that I don't even try to use exceed. I say surpass the expectations. Okay. Because you say exceed, oh, that means this. Okay. Yeah. So what I did with special education, I'm sorry, what I did with gifted and talented is that I took the e-docs and took the concepts of gifted and talented and how they receive um, support, supplemental specialized support. So an e-doc one for gifted and talented would be acceleration, have them move quickly through the pace of, of the uh, grade level instruction. The e-doc two is enhancement. So what you, in that, what basically is you're enhancing the experience to say, how could you basically look at this in a different, deeper way? How can you develop your education endowments and um, your experience into personal expertise? And it's very sensitive using this because best practices are best practices. It just doesn't matter what grade level you are. It doesn't matter what your label is. Best practice is best practice. But what I didn't want to do with this is to say that, um, oh, this is just reserved for special education kids. Or, oh, this is just reserved for language learners. Or this is just reserved. Everybody can benefit for it. But in terms of RTI and intervention or as a multi-tier system support, um, these e-docs are the specialized support. It goes above and beyond the RTI. Specifically, it supports um, Buffer and Mattis' Malone's inverted RTI pyramid because that one is not about going like this where you're trying to identify special education. That one's actually inverted where it whittles down to the individual student. So that point, this point right here, it's like mm. tier three plus for right. that specialized right. service, but the student isn't stuck. The student isn't labeled. The student isn't signed. They aren't placed there. Every child should have the opportunity to not only um, be delivered grade level instruction, but also be provided interventions and have modifications made for them, but also most importantly, opportunities for extension. Every child. Right. And right. that's DOK. 
Because if you use those levels, you say, man, I want to go and extend their learning to the next level. Yeah. Now I know this at a DOK2. Now I'm going to take it to a DOK3. Now I'm going to take it to DOK4. Boy, they're not demonstrating their learning at DOK2. Well, can they do this at a DOK1? Can they do this at a DOK1? Can they do this at a DOK2? So now you're really using it as an identification piece to really identify their strengths. Right. That's what the book is going to be about that comes okay. out next year. Awesome. All right, Eric, I've heard this uh, rant before, uh, and I'm only going to give you 60 seconds because I have a couple <laughs> of other questions I want to get to, but tell us 60 seconds or less, what is wrong with the DOK wheel? Go. Uh, it's full of verbs and it is not, not depth of knowledge. It's another way to do blooms. It is really just another way to do blooms. It actually is derived from the hot wheel, the higher order thinking wheel that was developed by Barbara Clark, who was a gifted specialist. The difference between the hot wheel and the DOK wheel is that the hot wheel has five spokes and the DOK wheel has four. Okay. And the problem with the DOK wheel and the just the creation of it was that when Florida used depth of knowledge for their alignment studies, some teacher down there, this is a story I heard about, some teacher down there created this wheel and uploaded it to the internet. And then when the United States adopted the Common Core State Standards and said that they are driven by higher order thinking or measured by higher order thinking as categorized by Bloom's and depth of knowledge is designated by Webb's, everyone went, what's this depth of knowledge thing? Um, basically what uh, happened was, was that when we all went to Common Core in the States, 46 states went to it, one of the things as part of the Race to the Top grant, they said, don't every state make their own individual training. If somebody takes a training, share it with the other 45. So there was a particular state, I will not name the state, but I will allude to it that some of the players on the team from this state in the past are Reggie Jackson, Lou Pinella, Derek Jeter, you can figure out what the state is. <laughs> they created this training and a video. And what someone did was they did a Google search. Is there a visual out there for depth of knowledge? They found this wheel. And they said, oh, it came from Florida. Florida was using depth of knowledge for their assessment alignment. Oh, Jeb Bush was behind a lot of the Common Core, where he's the governor of Florida. This must be true. So they took this wheel, they made a video, and they made this poster, and they told all the 45 states, hey, this is depth of knowledge. So 45 states embedded that 46 states embedded them into their trainings and did a train a trainer model. So brought it back. People yeah. like you and me, we were going and um, making uh, our presentations around this, writing articles about this. Yeah. And it's completely inaccurate. Mm. Webb has refuted it. If you go on John Walkup's blog, Cognitive Rigor to the Core, there's the interview. He says, it's not the okay. Karen Hess refutes it. I refute it. But for some reason, people are scared to recognize and realize that. And that's what I'm hoping my book will do is that to say that this is the truth behind DOK. If you're using it and it's working for you, great. But it's working for you for assessing and instructing for higher order thinking. Yeah. It is not for depth of knowledge. And I strongly believe um, that's the reason why these assessments that we've been given for the last 10 years that are college and career readiness, mm -hmm. I think that's the disconnect because We've been assessing kids on this concept of depth of knowledge and we were given the wrong tool. I mean, to me, and it's right. funny, I made a comparison like this where somebody said to me, well, we're gonna keep on using a DOK wheel and if it doesn't work for the teachers, we'll bring you in. And I said, okay, that's like saying, okay, I have this hockey team and we give you baseball bats to play hockey. If they lose that season, I'll say, oh, we had the wrong tool. Here's the right tool to do it. 
Right. It's inaccurate. It's incorrect. Yeah. Just Google it. Why is it the okay <laughs> wheel inaccurate? You will yeah, find yeah. me. You will find Karen Hess. You will find Norman yeah. Webb, the guy who created it. He said it's not accurate. Yeah, yeah. You know? There you go. All right. I'm going to cut you off there because that was longer no than worries. 60 seconds, but that's all good. I, I wanted you to get that <laughs> off your chest. I think that's such an important message because uh, uh, I know you've been a, a, a pretty, um, you know, uh, vocal uh, proponent of making sure people are not using the wheel. And I wanted to give you that opportunity. All right. Let's um, let's Thank finish you. up with uh, let's finish up with principals, curriculum directors, uh, superintendents. So when you're working with principals, you know, leaders in general, uh, what are some of your main messages to them for how they could cultivate a, a rigorous learning environment? How, how do you help work through principals or work through district leaders in, in the work that you do? A lot of it, what I do is I try to find out what the strengths of the instructor is or what the strengths of the leader is and build upon those strengths. So they basically can think divergently, not differently, divergently. Right. Um, looking at it and really trying to figure out with teachers more so how can we make your jobs easier if you're working harder than the students something's wrong you got to flip it and again it's asking questions like i will ask you questions not to just challenge you i will ask you questions also to understand so so a lot of what i do with it is to say okay what are you doing how's that working for you what if you tried it this way when i coach it's not about teach like me. It's about helping you realize what you could do, okay? Or looking at it from a different lens or looking at it from a different perspective, okay? And then I usually try to say, okay, what's working first? And that's actually harder for them to come up with. Okay, what's not working? Oh, they'll tell you exactly what's not working. Right. A bigger thing is, is also is that figure out what your focus is, okay? and also figure out how you're using assessments. One of the things I used to do as an administrator is that I will give the assessments and say, hey, this is how the students are doing it, you know, on it. And then I'll say, okay, tell me how they're authentically doing. So when I ever get, as a teacher, and I said, the kids are doing this on the assessment, I say, okay, yeah, because let me look at the item and you have to look at the items on it. You can't just depend upon the standardized assessments or benchmarks. You have to look at it as, first of all, what was that item asking? How aligned was it? And what can I do to basically do authentic learning? Some people do better on open-ended questions than they do on a multiple choice, but also looking at the social emotional part of it. And really my big focus is, can you show growth? That's really the biggest thing. Can you show growth? When it comes to school leaders, when they do observations, ask. Who's working harder? Who's doing more of the talking, the teacher or the students? And please do not evaluate your teachers using Webb's depth of knowledge, okay? It's not an evaluation tool. It's a coaching tool, okay? Like I can say, hey, I saw you came in here. You're doing this here today. How could you get this to the next level? Here's DOK1. How can you get them to do a DOK2? Here's DOK1. How can you get them to DOK3? That's also a message for state departments because state departments for schools improvement, they're saying, oh, when I came in today, I noticed your class was only doing DOK1. I'm actually telling schools to say this. Yeah, because today I am basically having them acquire the knowledge. In a couple of days from now, they're going to apply the knowledge. Next week, they're going to analyze it. And boy, we're going to augment it at the end of this unit. Why don't you come back in a couple of weeks and see what they did with it? You can't just judge on a snapshot or a walkthrough. 
Right. So use it as a tool for coaching, not evaluation. That's my right. big message. And we've got a whole nother podcast at some point to talk about how DOK is not a rubric and not a grading scale and not levels of proficiency. So that, that is, a, I'm not even going to open that can of worms. With yeah, today, don't even Eric. talk about standard grades yeah, grading. No, now. I know because you and I've had several conversations about that. And, uh, and, and it's something I continue to make sure people understand that, that, uh, DOK is not your rubric. Uh, but anyway, we, we, you know, Eric, I really, really yeah. do appreciate, uh, this has been very informative and I certainly appreciate your passion is coming through, uh, your, your, your depth of knowledge, uh, around DOK is, is, uh, is obvious. And I know that, uh, this is one of those knife and fork conversations where you really do, uh, you've just provided such great, you know, food for thought. And, and yeah. I know that, uh, you know, a lot of listeners, the brains are hurting now at this point because of the sophistication, <laughs> <So is mine. laughs> the, the, the sophistication with which you bring, uh, you know, to this, the sophistication you bring to the conversation is just, uh, it's, it's impressive and uh, really appreciate it. We're going to shift gears here, as I always do. We're going to end uh, our time with a little bit of fun. Um, I'm going to ask you a few lighthearted questions. It's sort of five fun questions to finish up the interview so people can get to know you, uh, Eric, a little bit more on a personal level. Um just going to put you on the spot a little bit, nothing too intrusive. Feel free to take the questions or the answers in, in any way that you want to go. Uh, if, if the choices, for example, if I give you a this or that type of question and neither are applicable, go ahead and run in a different direction. But we're going to begin with the first question. And the first one is a this or that choice. I'm going to ask you Batman or Superman? Superman. Oh. And why, why so? Why? Because here's the thing. Here you got this guy who's got such immense power and every day he's tempted to basically use that power for the wrong reasons. And he doesn't, you know, Batman, I mean, Batman is cool, but Superman is impressive. And it's not just because of his feats. And there's a lot of actually a lot of religious allegory to it, because I mean, you know, this guy has Midwestern farmer small town values. He's got a power of a God, you yeah. know, and, and actually, it's really great when you see Superman. I'm a comic book guy, so you can tell you know, <laughs> I read off tell. the back, actually. <laughs> but but here's the thing. It's that the best fights you can see with Superman is when he fights with Darkseid because he'll say to you, you know, every day I hold back. But man, I see you and I have to thank you because you just let me be who I really am. So Superman. And, 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 and it's also it's like the world is dark enough and Batman represents that darkness. Yeah, we need some light. And I mean, that's funny to piggyback on Superman. My other favorite is Captain America. Because again, the world is dark around him, yet he stays true to his beliefs and values, and he's willing to basically listen, but also stay true to them. And that's why those are my two favorite, yeah, Superman yeah. and Captain America. Yeah, you wonder, you get Superman, why do we need any other superheroes anyway? Um, you know, and Batman certainly would have fit in in the 90s with everything clipped to his belt, like a fanny pack and all those cool gadgets. But um, I'm with you on Superman for sure. Okay, number two, uh, what is your favorite carnival food? <laughs> oh, man, um, the stuff that doesn't make my stomach sick. <laughs> <laughs> do you have an so, example? Uh, man. I like uh, fry bread. Okay. I love fry bread. 
you know, I mean, I, 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 I'm not into like something that makes me worry about becoming a uh, chemistry or biological experiment <laughs> or might make me grow a third arm out of my back. Fair or, enough. Yeah. But fry bread, I would have to yeah. say fry bread. I love fry Carn bread. Carnival food is interesting because you have to weigh out not just the flavor and the taste of the food, but you've got to think about what ride am I going on next in order to balance out what might happen in your stomach as a result of eating uh, what you just ate. Okay, you question. Got to, you also got to think about the vendor who's selling the food and look how dirty the <laughs> thing is. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, okay, question three. Uh, this is kind of an ongoing debate out there, and it's the debate between, I'll give you, this is another one of those this or that's, in and out or five guys. Oh, in and out. Oh my gosh. I'm going to lunch with my daughter right after this uh, interview to in and out. We got a couple of in and outs here. Right. Totally in and out. Oh yeah. my gosh. You know, I, I swore off fast food for years. Um, yeah. You know, I would go to Chick-fil-A. That's the fast I would go or Panda Express. Right. But man, my daughter introduced me in and out. So here's the deal. Get the fries well done. Okay. okay? When you do your order, say, I want my fries well done. That is is what will make in and out that's that's the best. key so in and out in and out all the way all right that's uh, good advice about the fries too appreciate that eric okay number four uh with the recent passing of eddie van halen and listeners you need to know that eric is a massive van halen fan uh and eric am i right to assume you are on the david lee roth side of that ledger is that correct you're right Okay. Yeah, you're correct. I, th I thought so. I thought so. So I'm wondering, I'm wondering about with the, with, with, uh, you know, obviously Eddie Van Halen's passing was in the news. I'm wondering about your favorite, your top five in any order. Well, maybe you have an order, your top five Van Halen songs all time. What are your, what are your go-to Van Halen tunes when, when you want to really get after it as far as listening to uh, the Van Halen music? In any order? Any order, doesn't have to be in order of top five. It just, what are your five most favorite Van Halen songs? Popular is definitely Panama. Okay. Okay, pa I mean, Panama and and Jump, you know, from 1984, yeah. that's the popular. Yeah. Deep Cuts, uh, Light Up the Sky, which is off Van Halen uh, 2. Um, mean Street, that's it's kind of that's kind of a single but not that's mm -hmm. a fair warning um and uh gosh there's so many i'm trying to think about the one that really pumps me. oh the one that makes me happy all the time is a van halen song off van halen 2 called um beautiful girls mm. you know i'm a bum i'm a bum in the sun and i got no <laughs> yeah. special plans special <laughs> all the bills are paid i got it made in the shade and all i didn't need is that woman i understand you know, I mean, there we go. That, yeah. Like I said, you see, you see the happiness with it. Oh so, yeah. But man, it's so. I'm such a Van Halen. I mean, I'm such a huge. I mean, seriously, I got, I bought this, and notice I keep it next to my book. This is my little uh, Eddie um, memorial guitar thing. I bought it yeah. after um, he passed. I, you know, the thing about Eddie Van Halen, and I think we can learn a lot from him as teachers, is that he was so egoless. He knew he was the great, one of the greatest guitarists, one of the fastest guitarists. But man, he never bashed anybody and he never ever like, you know, a lot of the guitar errors at that time, what they used to do is they used to turn their back to the audience because no one wanted to steal their riffs. And mm -hmm. Eddie didn't. And that's kind of like try to make I try to adopt my philosophy like that is like like you and I together, we do, you know, you do assessment, I do DOK questioning. Eddie Van Halen's attitude was like, hey man, what music are you playing? All right, let's jam. 
Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like the way I try to do things. It's like, I would come to you and say, hey man, you're doing assessment. I got DOK, I got questioning. I'm Eddie Van Halen on this. You're Eric Clapton on that. Let's just jam, man. You know, and, and that's kind of like my feeling about it. So, I mean, mm-hmm. seriously, I, that, I was really upset that day. I, yeah. when he died, I knew about it because it was, it's funny. I know I'm going a little bit lower in the story it's with okay. it. When I go to Pasadena, which is where they, um, they, they started, I wear a Van Halen shirt every time I go to Pasadena because there's always some guy who comes up to me older, some lady who comes up to me older goes, you like Van Halen? Yeah, they played my backyard in 1970, whatever, okay? Because yeah. they were a backyard garage band. Mm-hmm. And when I flew home one time, this woman sits down next to me and she's got Fender on her, um, on her, uh, on her suitcase. And I said, do you play guitar? Because I play guitar. She goes, no, my husband uh, works for Fender out here in Arizona. She goes, I see you like Van Halen. I go, yeah, I'm a huge fan. She goes, well, my husband designed Michael Anthony's uh, Jack Daniels bass guitar. Huh. I was like, whoa. So, so she showed me pictures of him and like, she knew I was a fan because Michael Anthony's son passed, uh, grandchild passed away. And I asked, you know, how's he doing with that? And at the time it was the talk about the rumors about them getting back together. And mm. I said, okay, so you need to tell me as a huge Van Halen fan, are they getting back together? And she said, they want to, but Eddie's sick. And she told me this about a year ago, and she told me that he was going to Germany to get the treatments. And that's where Farrah Fawcett went when she had her cancer treatments. I knew about the cancer for a long time. And then when he finally passed, I was like, oh, my God, it finally caught up. And there was an interview with his son, Wolf, whose song, Distance, if you don't cry when you hear that song, it's, yeah. I mean, look at me, 50 years old, big guy. I cry when I hear that song. Um, what he did on the interview, because they asked him on Howard Stern, he said, how close was there? He said, I need to address the reunion. And the reunion was going to be that Michael Anthony was going to come back and Dave and Sammy were going to do the leads and trade off. And they were either going to bring in Gary Sharon, who did the one hit uh, Van Halen three album. And you think about that and you're like, man, what did we lose? And that to me, like really made me think about appreciating the time you have appreciating what the opportunities mm-hmm. are and that's hard right now with this pandemic but yeah, like yeah. make the most of the time because you just don't know yeah. when it's going to be taken away from you think about what we were denied with that so but for just sure, uh, sure. yeah huge huge van halen fan as you can tell <laughs> yeah well I, and i knew that and that's why i asked the question i appreciate that all right so eric this is the uh this is the last podcast i'm going to produce before uh christmas Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you are going to be the definitive voice on the final question, which is the question of whether or not Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Yes or no? And why yep. is Die Hard a Christmas why? movie? Go ahead. Yeah. Not even that it just only takes place at Christmas. What's the name of his wife in Die Hard? Holly. <laughs> okay. It is a Christmas movie. Okay. Right. I'll even give you one more. What if I told you that Die Hard is actually a sequel to a Frank Sinatra movie that was produced in the 1960s? Oh, see, now you're, now you're, you're putting DOK tricks on us here. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, it actually, it's, it's based on a book called Nothing Lasts Forever. And it's the sequel to a book called The Detective. And what happened was, is that in 1960s, Frank Sinatra played, adapted the detective and he played the starring role. And he was the, the lead in the movie. And the movie, the book was, was by a guy named Roderick Thorpe, an author named Roderick Thorpe. 
And um, he wrote a book called The Detective that featured this character. And then the sequel was called Nothing Lasts Forever about that same character going to visit his daughter in California when there was a terrorist takeover. They changed it and made it Die Hard. So what not many people know is not only is Die Hard a Christmas movie, but Die Hard is also a sequel, a subtle sequel to mm -hmm. a Frank Sinatra movie called The Detective <laughs> in the 1960s. Don't believe me? Google it. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is where uh, I guess, you know, last week, uh, Cassandra and I stand alone as only the only two people having asked this question of several. Um, I will go to my grave and say that Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. It just happens to have Christmas things in it. But mm -hmm. this is where you and I can agree to disagree, and that's fine. So uh, the other Eric, question you need to ask is, is Lethal Weapon a Christmas movie? Yeah, because it also happens at Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> all, all I need to do is put a Christmas tree in a scene, and suddenly I've got myself a Christmas movie. Um, there you go. Yeah, we can agree to disagree on that one, because <laughs> because it really matters. Uh, one final question for you, Eric, and I know, I know that you uh, are familiar with the questions as we end uh, our time together, and that is the question of success and happiness. One of the things that I'm looking at long-term with a podcast of course, is to explore the idea of not just success as an educator, but as a human being. What is success? What is happiness? So I pose this question to everyone, and I'm going to pose it to you, which is, if a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, what is your definition of success? How would you answer them? Did I make a positive impact? But did I make a positive impact on somebody's life? Yeah. You know, did I make a positive impact? Did I make a positive impact on, you know, my family, um, my students, someone I trained? Did I, did I make a positive impact on, on their life? And did I do something that made them feel better or realize something? Mm -hmm. So I think that's to me, success. I mean, mm -hmm. that's, it's not wealth. It's, it's not material. I mean, I've, I've worked for somebody, I, you know, before I became a teacher, I worked in the film industry. I worked for a guy, money not didn't bring happiness. I'll tell you that. Um, and even like fame and, and success is just really your sense of feeling like you made a positive contribution to this world and you made somebody feel better. And being unsuccessful means that it didn't work, but you didn't fail. See, I don't believe unsuccessful and failure are synonymous. Failure is when you don't. Like I failed to um, become an astronaut. I never went. I failed to become a lawyer. I didn't go to law school. But I was unsuccessful working in the film industry, but at least I tried. Right. And I can walk away from that. So success is, did I make a positive impact? Did I, did I change the world a little bit for yeah. making a better place? That's for right. me for success. Happiness, right. I would say is... Um, the love of my kids, you know, I mean, you know, I, I have these accolades. I mean, I still got to pay for my Starbucks, but uh, that's what I like to say about it. But, yeah. you know, the greatest role I have is dad. Yeah. You know, I have, I have kids who call me dad yeah. and there's, you know, or, you know, even not even that, but being even like, even like a father figure, like even to my, my niece and my nephew or like someone like a guy that they can look to, like they have, you know, my, uh, you know, dads, but, um, you know, being someone who's like kind of like not a role model, but someone they can look to and kind of like see, yeah, that's the type of person, you know, I want to know or be. So I think that's my happiness is that more so that's actually probably tied to my success too. But my happiness is being a dad to my kids and seeing them succeed and seeing them 
you know, do well. And that's my happiness. So, uh, no, but we no got better. this. We got this big, big energetic conversation, and I get so yeah. serious and sober yeah. about that. Okay. So, but yeah, that's awesome. Thanks for that question, yeah. though. Brings uh, brings everything back into perspective, and I think for so many of us, we we think about the people immediately around us, mm-hmm. and measure our success and happiness by the impact we have on them, and the impact they have on us. And right. That plays for us. Eric, I, I can't thank you enough for all the time we spent together today. Uh, listeners, I would really encourage you to follow Eric on Twitter. Uh, his Twitter handle is at MaverickEDU12. So that's at MaverickEDU12. Uh, also encourage you to check out his uh, website. That's www.mavericeducation.com. Uh, lots no of Steve in Maverick. That's the big thing. Yeah. M-A-V-E-R-I-K. No, no, no C, right. And uh, some great, great 60 second PD videos on there. A lot of great information, a lot of stuff to, to learn about Eric's work, Uh, contacting Eric, if you're ever interested in, in, uh, in having Eric work with you or work with your school or work with your school district. Um, There's ways to contact Eric that way. So uh, again, Eric, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. Uh, Really looking forward to the new book uh, and just want to finish up by saying happy holidays to you and your family. Happy holidays to you too. Thank you for having me. It was an honor and privilege to be here. This was great. Great. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to address the concept of repacking standards. This was something I mentioned this past week in a couple of different Zoom trainings I was conducting, and it triggered some really good discussion about assessment and assessment design and summative assessment, etc. So I thought I would bring it forward here. Now, you know, at this point, by now the process of analyzing and unpacking standards is pretty familiar to most teachers. You know, in this era of standards-based instruction, unpacking standards to identify specific learning targets or underpinnings, uh, and then organizing those underpinnings and targets into a purposeful learning progression, that's that's fairly ubiquitous in, in most places, okay? So the goal, of course, is to create an intentional sequence through which learners advance from the simple to the most sophisticated demonstrations of learning, with the most sophisticated typically being the demonstration of proficiency against the identified standard or the identified standards. The unpacking of the standards fuels the process of formative assessment, and by unpacking and identifying specific targets and skills and underpinnings, teachers are able to pinpoint aspects of strength and aspects that need improvement. Now, since most standards are robust, complex, and include the combination of several elements, The unpacking process also allows for a level of specificity in determining which skills are strong and which require further strengthening. The combination of unpacking and creating these purposeful learning progressions makes it easier for teachers to determine why. Why is the learner currently unsuccessful at performing at the expected levels? And they would be able to figure that out with a little more precision. Without this process, you know, teachers can't always be sure as to why learners are underperforming and the learners themselves would never know. To accurately assess and use assessment information formatively, uh, this whole process is essential. Now with all of that, far too many of us stop short of completing the process which involves the repacking of standards when the verification of learning, summative assessment, is the primary purpose. Once a standard has been unpacked, the standard itself no longer exists unless the learners are asked to demonstrate their learning against the standard as a whole, not just the isolated skills that make up the standard. So when it comes to meeting a standard, the whole really is greater than the sum of its parts. A parallel can be drawn from cooking, and I often use you know recipes as a kind of analogy to help explain this. 
um, and the process we all go through to produce a meal. So if you're making a recipe for the first time, you would unpack that recipe to find out what ingredients are necessary to make the meal. But, but having the separate ingredients doesn't make the meal. It's the purposeful combination of the ingredients that produces the meal, the actual meal itself. The random combination of ingredients will likely produce an undesirable outcome, but the purposeful or measured combination of the ingredients is what brings the magic, right? That's what makes the recipe come to life and become the actual meal. So now back to the classroom. I'm going to use a simple example, maybe an oversimplified example, uh, but, but just to illustrate this point, I'm going to use an example to kind of highlight what I mean uh, by this. So imagine a math teacher has a standard of uh, using the Pythagorean relationship, right? A squared plus B squared equals C squared to solve the third side of a right triangle. The teacher, you know, dutifully unpacks the standard and identifies the specific underpinnings, the targets, and the skills that support the meaning of the standard, which includes things like knowing the formula, um, understanding the corresponding sides within the formula, like C always refers to the hypotenuse, and most importantly, how to calculate squares and square roots. So the teacher then creates a learning progression to develop these skills within each learner, uses assessment formatively to keep their learning on track, and they've got that whole process going. Now flash forward to the end of the unit where it's now time for the Pythagorean relationship test, if you will, okay? And again, I know this is an oversimplified example, but I wanna just illustrate the point. The test is made up of two sections. Section A involves 25 questions where the students are asked to calculate just simple square or square root questions. Section B has 25 questions that involve using the Pythagorean relationship to solve the third side of a right triangle, right? So the actual standard. So now imagine one learner earns 24 out of 25 on the first section, calculating squares and square roots, but only 11 out of 25 on the second. So the question would be, has the learner met the standard with any level of proficiency? And the obvious answer is no, 11 out of 25 on the standards, uh, the section B, is nowhere near proficiency. Using the Pythagorean relationship, they fell short of that for sure. But if the teacher isn't mindful this test result, and again, I'm only using percentages for effect here, this test result could end up in the grade book as a 35 out of 50. That's 70%. Even though it's obvious that this student is nowhere near the 70% proficiency or proficiency level, whatever that means. Again, I'm not advocating percentages here, but they're nowhere near that level of proficiency when it comes to solving the third side of a right triangle. Even in a standards-based system, if you're not mindful, section A and B might get combined to come up with some overall proficiency. Like this teacher could think about, you know, in the first section there are four, second section there are two, therefore there are three. That kind of averaging and those kinds of inappropriate combinations of, of information or formative data. Now, of course, the potential combinations and complexity are far more plentiful, uh, but the point is that the teacher did not fully repack the standard for the summative purpose. Yes, there was a section, section B, that did fully encapsulate, but then there was section A, which was in some cases redundant. So the result will actually end up skewing the learner's actual proficiency level against the standard. And if that happens repeatedly, then undoubtedly this will distort the accuracy of the reported grade. Understanding how to calculate squares and square roots does not mean learners can solve the third side of a right triangle, but learners who can solve the third side of a right triangle most definitely can calculate squares and square roots. 
It's an underpinning inside the standard. So not only, again, was section A redundant, it actually makes determining proficiency that much more challenging. The failure to fully repack the standards can have real consequences for both teachers and learners when it comes to accurate reporting of achievement. Like for teachers, the verification of learning can be distorted. And sometimes that verification, like a summative assessment, if it in fact is a test, can be artificially lengthy. Again, one more time, that first section on that test really was unnecessary and a little bit redundant. Of course, squares and square roots need to be assessed, but that assessment should occur much earlier in the unit where you get a confirmation of readiness for the students to move forward to actually put this all together. For learners, their grades or levels can inaccurately communicate where they are in relation to the standards, setting them up for a potential rude awakening, especially in cases where there's an external standardized test as part of the process, right? The learner could potentially think that he or she is actually proficient with using the Pythagorean formula and therefore maybe settle instead of investing more in their learning in preparation. The point here is that unpacking standards serves a real purpose in the instructional process, but the failure to repack can have real consequences as well. Skills in isolation are developed, sure, but the standards usually involve the combination of aspects, skills, and elements into a more sophisticated demonstration. You know, volleyball players must combine the toss, the contact point, the footwork, the weight transfer, the follow-through to serve effectively. One of these skills in isolation doesn't equate to an effective serve. Understanding the definitions of the three kinds of irony doesn't mean a learner can correctly identify the specific type of irony within a piece of literature or even, you know, construct their own original piece involving, say, situational irony, and they shouldn't really be able to offset their inability to produce that piece because they've memorized a few definitions. That is the opposite of rigor. Now, to be clear, all of the skills and underpinnings and targets need to be assessed, but they need to be assessed formatively and used exclusively for the purpose of instruction and feedback. The verification of meeting the standards needs to be about meeting the standard, not the combination of the underpinnings. So in doing so, teachers will clearly know what assessment results actually represent, and teachers will be better prepared to accurately interpret and respond to the results in ways that support the student's positive growth trajectory. Unpack for the formative purpose, repack for the summative purpose, right? The mantra you've heard me say many times throughout this podcast, quality over quantity. In most cases, you're going to see the underpinnings, but they'll be embedded into the questions or the prompts or the tasks that you provide to the students. And by embedding them, you'll raise the rigor and you'll ensure that students are expected to put it all together. And that's ultimately what they have to do in meeting a standard. That's all we have for this week. Remember to follow the podcast Twitter account for updates. It's at Tom Shimmer Pod. Also, my Twitter handle is at Tom Shimmer. You can email questions for Assessment Corner or suggestions and feedback to the email account. That's TomShimmerPod at gmail.com. And again, a reminder, we'll be on a two-week break. Uh, so no podcast next week or the week after, but we'll be back with a new episode on January the 4th. 
Uh, please subscribe, rate, review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts. That apparently is where it makes the biggest difference in terms of expanding the listening audience and getting the podcast noticed by listeners, uh, as well as subscribe to the YouTube channel. Remember, I talked about the fact you get full-length episodes of the podcast on YouTube. You also get the video interviews uh That'll come out just a few weeks after those interviews take place. And I'm looking to add some new features and some new video segments, et cetera, for 2021. So stay tuned for that. Um, I hope everyone has a great week, uh, a restful break. I cannot think of a time in my education career where the winter break was more anticipated than this year. And I know you've earned it. So I hope everyone has a restful break. Happy holidays to you and your family. Happy New Year. Uh, Stay safe, everyone. And I'm looking forward to reconnecting in January.